Hi, Pastor Adam here, and this month we are continuing our conversation on agency. Specifically this month we're talking about victory, how victory in Christ influences our agency as believers. This week, week one of May, we're talking about victory over death, how Christ and Christ alone provides a path forward, hope that we can have when we trust and have faith in Him, and how victory in Christ affects our agency now. It provides reason for living. It provides motivation. It provides new purpose. If that sounds like something that might be interesting to you, then check out this video. Paul deals with the subject of death and the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. And in doing so, Paul, the writer of this letter to the church in Corinth, gives a clear and concise uh, definition of the gospel. He shows how a denial of the resurrection of the dead is the denial of the gospel itself. And how believing in the gospel gives us hope in living now and hope in what's to come in the future. So, y'all should be ready to go. I didn't hear many pages turning. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, maybe you were tapping your phones to get to there. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this, Let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preach. I'm going to read the whole thing just so we're well ready to go when I'm referencing different portions of this chapter. So, 50 some odd verses, I think, is what's in this chapter. There we go. Let me remind you now, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the Twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. There he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me and not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I but God who was working through me by his grace. So it makes no difference whether I preach or they preach, for we all preach the same message as you have believed. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection from the dead. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sin. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, 
Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. And so you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. There is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come, and we, when, when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed, to be destroyed sorry, is death. For the scriptures say, God has put all things under his authority. Of course, when it says all things under his authority, that doesn't include God himself, who gave Christ his authority. And then when all things are under his authority, the Son will put under God's authority, so that God, who gave his Son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. If the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? And why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you. And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead? And if there is no resurrection, let's feast and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. Think carefully about what is right, and stop sinning. For to you, for to your shame, I say that some of you don't know God at all. But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed onto the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you are planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. Similarly, there are different kinds of flesh, one kind for humans, for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and the stars each have another kind, and even the stars differ from each other in their glory. It's the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they'll be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. And the scriptures tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, and then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people like the heavenly man. And just as we are now like the earthly, earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. What I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. 
But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised and live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. And then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says at the end, So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Did I get it right when I said how many verses there were? 68? Should have brought water. Ah, Jeremiah. The problem... Jeremiah. The problem for which Paul is writing about here in chapter 15, thanks, Jeremiah, is found in verses 12 through 18 of this chapter. My old roommate stole my water bottle. I think it's still at their house. Yeah. It's found in verses 12 through 18. I won't read it again. For different reasons... And within different sects of people during the time of his writing, the resurrection from the dead was a hotly contested topic. We see this in the book of Acts, in chapter 17, for example, with the Greeks, and in, chapters 20, and in chapter 23, with the Jewish, Jewish Sadducees. Man, I had a hard time. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses, verse 18, Paul's indictment is that anyone who does not believe in Christ's victory over death and by extension, ours through him has what he says a stray, has strayed from his faith. And we're not told exactly what form the denial of the resurrection of the dead took place there in Corinth when he's writing. But it might, might not be a jump to say that the fruit of their agency was spoiled because they perhaps didn't have a sound understanding of what Christ's victory over death meant for each of them and their, what we call, orthopraxy, their correct behavior, their actions, their practice. Paul specifically wrote to Timothy in that letter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16 through 18, to warn him that an improper view, there it is, there's that Stein, that an improper view, thanks, an improper view of death and the resurrection, the victory, leads to heresy. And he specifically, specifically calls out two people in that letter, Hymenaeus and Philetus, and says the things they are preaching are undermining people's faith, and their false gospel will spread like gangrene if left unchecked. We can see some forms of ungodliness this doctrinal deviation might have taken place here in the earlier chapters of this same letter of 1 Corinthians. While their theological error regarding the resurrection of the dead is 
expo- not exposed until chapter 15, where we just read, the fruits of their error are seen throughout. And he addresses those things throughout that letter in the first 14 chapters. Chapter 15 is like the, the penultimate chapter, and then he does his you know, wrap-up chapter in chapter 16. So it's one of the last chapters of this book of Corinthians, or this letter. In the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with the divisions which had disrupted the unity of the church in Corinth. The divisions were based on people's pride which had crept in and taken place in the church. Pride for certain leaders and their teachings. The Corinthians were puffed up because their leaders were, quote-unquote, the greatest and the most wise. And their esteem for these leaders resulted in this corresponding disdain for Paul, which Paul addresses. He sarcastically writes to them, You think you already have everything you need? You think you are already rich? You have begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. I wish you really were reigning already, for then we would be reigning with you. Instead, I sometimes think God has put us apostles on display like prisoners of war at the end of a victory parade, condemned to die. We've become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and to angels alike. Our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools, but you claim to be so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're so powerful. You're honored, but we are ridiculed. We're, even now, we go hungry and thirsty, and we don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We're often beaten and have no home. We work wearily with our hands to earn our living. We bless those who curse us. We're patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us. Yet we are treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash right up to the present moment. Paul's gospel, the gospel of Christ, same as the other apostles, was disdained because it was too simplistic, too naive, too foolish, as he says. But the new gospel, again, sarcasm, the new gospel proclaimed by the Corinthians' new leaders was much more sophisticated, much more acceptable and appealing to a pagan culture of the day. For some of the Corinthians, they thought they had already made it. They'd arrived, spiritually speaking. But the context of that Second Timothy letter in chapter 2 and 3 in the book of Hebrews and the book of First Peter and the example set forth by Paul and the apostles points to a different view of spirituality, a different view of death and victory through the resurrection. The, script, the scriptures speak of our identification with Christ in this age through our participation, as it says, in his sufferings, which you can see throughout the New Testament by the different writers, particularly Paul, rather than our escape from them. And so it's no wonder that the spiritual Corinthians look down on Paul. Spiritual Corinthians look down on Paul. Sarcasm. They'd already arrived. Paul had not. They were kings. Paul was homeless. Paul and the apostles were a disgrace, and the Corinthians were ashamed of them. They didn't look or act like royalty, like victorious people, but like the scum of the world, as he says in the fourth chapter. To speak of the resurrection of the dead as a future certainty meant they had not already arrived, that the kingdom of God had not yet come. It meant that they must identify with Christ in his earthly humiliation, in his sufferings, rather than in his triumphant reign. 
And so they set aside the literal, literal bodily resurrection, which is why he's writing in this chapter 15, and embraced instead in its place some kind of spiritual resurrection which had already taken place and which they were already participating in. A kingdom of this age, not the next. A kingdom which the apostles and their gospel would not embrace or sanction. As I said, the fruit of their false doctrine and their poor agency as believers was on display within the rest of the book which Paul speaks of. You have to know that Corinth, that city, was like a a Vegas today. A city like that, right? It's a huge city. It's a booming metropolis. It's an economical capital. Multicultural. Huge population. With depravity on full display. And this didn't exclude what the church allowed to creep in. In chapter 5, Paul exposes one professing Christian at Corinth who is living in such a degraded, or degraded, sorry, degraded fashion that even the pagan Corinthians would blush. Chapter 5. The Corinthian church isn't ashamed, but proud of their behavior and their actions. But how can they be? Just as they distinguish between a spiritual resurrection and a bodily resurrection, they also distinguish between a spiritual spirituality and a bodily spirituality. It would seem that many of them thought they could be spiritual in spirit, but immoral and self-indulgent in the flesh. And so they not only tolerated shocking sexual immorality, like that chapter 5 reference, among their membership, but they practice all kinds of bodily indulgences themselves. Their false gospel and poorly understood victory was what allowed them to settle disputes in pagan courts, for example. Believer to believer, taking it to an unbiblical place, an ungodly court. They ate and drank in ways that disrupted and and caused disharmony in the body and caused others to stumble. They participated in pagan rituals. They desecrated the communion by becoming drunk. Overall, really, they were gluttonous pigs just all around. And they didn't care about anything other than satisfying themselves on just about all levels. They minimized, they had a poor doctrinal biblically sound understanding of the future victories that we have because of Christ, and they majored instead on the present moment. You know, we throw around this YOLO term in a flippant, joking way. But um, if ever there was an outlook and lifestyle like that, surely these guys lived it and what they practiced and and how they lived and what they professed. So then Paul, after addressing all these different things throughout this letter in 1 Corinthians, after addressing them all individually, gets to this point now in chapter 15. And he introduces the subject of victory, the resurrection from the dead, not as an entirely new and separated idea or subject, but as the root problem under, underlying the Corinthians believers' sins. 
I mentioned the problem is highlighted in those six verses, 12 through 18 or 19. The denial of the resurrection, not of Christ, but of those who claim him. And there's a major, um, it's, it's like a, I don't know if you call it an oxymoron, there's a, it doesn't make sense. You can't claim one without the other. If one believes there's no resurrection of the dead at all, then that means Christ could not have been raised, because you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead at all. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then the apostles are deceivers, and the Corinthians are deceived and to be pitied, for their faith is futile, he says. But in verses 20 through 28, Paul returns to the certainty, the certainty of our Lord's resurrection, and he plays out its implications for us. Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead was the first fruits of the resurrection, he says. And other resurrections will follow as a divinely purposed result. The first to rise will be those who have trusted in him, and it's only after death is finally finally defeated by the resurrection of all men that the kingdom can be handed to the Father. Any hope of the kingdom of God has a prerequisite, the resurrection of the dead. That's what he says here in chapter 15. And the source of the Corinthians' error regarding a bodily resurrection is revealed in verse 33 and 34. Illicit fellowship has caused them to become soft on sin and thus vulnerable in doctrinal deviation. This is why we here at the church preach this message of being tethered. Tethered to sound doctrine. Tethered to the body. Their way of living allowed doctrinal deviation, which tended to validate their sin. There's a term for that nowadays, and we call it echo chambers. Right? We only want to hear what will validate what we want to be true. That's where they were. They lived in an echo chamber. They only let in those people that would allow them to do what they want. And so their faith was bad. It was weak. Their orthopoxy was bad. In verses 35 through 49, Paul takes on the objections which objections which some have raised concerning the resurrection of the dead. Do they wonder how the dead can be raised? Are they perplexed that the bodies we place in the ground decay and that an imperishable body resulting from the decay seems scientifically untenable? Let them simply refresh their memory, Paul alludes to, with how plants grow. A physical body must come first and be replaced by a spiritual one. The objections to the resurrection of the body are simply the result of a lack of faith in the God who is creator of all bodies and who raised our Lord from the dead. And Adam's sin, which brings about a bodily death and decay, and Christ's righteousness, which produces life and a bodily transformation. And in those final eight verses of the chapter, he builds into his triumphant climax. Physical death and the setting aside of our mortal bodies is a necessity because these earthly bodies, he says, have no place in the kingdom of God. And so we're told we're given new ones. We're given the same resurrected state as Christ. And he says that 
everyone who believes will receive that. It'll happen to those who have already died, and it'll happen to those who are alive still. In the blink of an eye, he says. And all of this, he says, and he quotes the Old Testament scripture, removes the sting and of sin and death and assures us of victory. In the light of this truth of the resurrection, of the resurrected Christ from the grave, we know that our earthly toil and labor is not in vain, he says. And so he says, be immovable, be vigilant. Our five-year team got up there now. Have an eternal outlook, an eternal investment in all that we do, in the ways that we live, in what we practice, and in what we believe. It's, it was important for Paul to start with Christ as he admonished the Corinthian church. Even Christ, when he spoke about his death, partnered it with his victory over it. Christ didn't just talk about he's going to die and then leave it there and leave it in this sad, bleak state for his apostles and those people that would come to hear him preach and teach. He spoke about his victory as tied to it. And even the people who opposed and killed him knew this, and I would say they were even a little insecure over it. In Matthew chapter 27, you see the Pharisees pleading to Pilate to allow them to, like, take extra precaution to, you know, heal up the tomb, because they knew what he preached. The next day on the Sabbath, leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate, and they told him, Sir, we remember what, the dece- what that deceiver once said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until that third day, and this will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and telling everyone who was raised from the dead. In the letter, Paul is reminding his readers that the resurrection is based on one of the most irrefutable evidences possible. The eyewitness testimony of, like, so 500 plus 12, right? 512 people-ish. Christ's victory over death and resurrection profoundly changed even his own life. That's why he starts at a resurrected Christ when he's admonishing these Corinthian believers. Consider the man Paul was before. The resurrection was the means by which Paul was converted from an enemy of Christ someone who literally made it his nine-to-five to hunt down Christians and persecute them and kill them. It's what made him, that person, that, that job, and turned him into a follower of Christ. Three times in the book of Acts, chapters 9, 9 22, and 26, Paul's conversion experience on the road to Damascus is, is detailed, is reported. And that appearance of the risen Christ, the risen and glorified Christ, which blinded Paul, stopped him in his tracks, and it led to his conversion. That recognition led to a complete 180 for someone even like that. And so it's no wonder that Paul saw the resurrection of our Lord as such a significant event to be understood in a sound way, in a way that provides meaning for how we live. It turned his entire life upside down. 
and the purpose of his very existence now, or then, he's dead now, his job, his career change, became to preach the resurrected Savior, the resurrected Savior for all mankind, the victory for all mankind. But he does, to their credit, he gives them a little credit for it. It wasn't Christ's own victory over death, which was denied by some in Corinth. And he says that at the beginning. He says, which some of you still stand firm in, the victory, the resurrected Christ. But instead, the victory that we all share through him. That's where the hang-up was. That's where he's talking about it in verse 12 through 18 or 19 or whatever it is. The resurrection of us. The victory we have because of it. Not just the victory that Christ had. It has to have meaning. It has to mean something that the Messiah, their Messiah, our Lord, rose from the dead. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus responds to a vain attempt at some Sadducees who were trying to, I don't know, like intellectually trap him in his teaching by saying, for when the dead rise, when Jesus says, for when the dead rise, and then he goes on to switch his verbiage in that chapter of the dead to the living. But now as to whether the dead will be raised, haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses? Moses, In the story of the burning bush, long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. You've made a serious error. Don't try to trap me. He says in John chapter 5, Don't be surprised, Jesus saying this. Don't be surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life, and those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own. Paul reasons from the resurrection and victory of Christ. If Christ has victory and is risen from the dead, then how is it possible for anyone to reason that there is no victory at all? How is it possible for someone to live as if there's no victory at all? This is his admonishment to them in the whole book. To say that there is no victory over death and yet to affirm that Christ rose is, for Paul, a logical impossibility. If there's no resurrection of the dead, as some of them believe, then we must also conclude that Christ did not conquer it. That's Paul's point, and that's Paul's reason for starting the way he does in chapter 15. The implications of those conclusions, then, should be massive. He first rejects the conclusion as illogical altogether, but then he challenges the implications of their conclusion that there is then no future glory for the believer. And he says that the believer should be pitied, not persecuted. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then the gospel outlined in verses 1 through 11 
is false. The resurrection of the Lord was proclaimed by Paul and the apostles as one of the foundational truths of the gospel. And since the apostles preached this, preached Christ crucified, buried, and risen, it's not complete unless he's risen from the dead, their ministry would be vain if Christ didn't actually conquer it. It would be vain in the sense that men risked their lives and made monumental, monumental sacrifices for the message that they preached. A message that was false, which had no saving power. The message of the apostles and of their ministry and of their teaching would be rendered useless if there was no actual victory or if it was proven false. faith of people who believe in that message would be undermined. The gospel Paul preached to Corinth is the gospel which proclaimed victory over death. It proclaimed Christ's resurrection. It's a huge, if you look at just the whole of his ministry, it is everywhere. It's never separate, a separate thought or a, a left out part of anything he ever teaches about. It says it's the same gospel which they have received, by which they are saved, by which they should be standing on. If Christ didn't rise from from the dead, their faith has no foundation at all. That's how big of a deal it is to understand and live in this victory. It's empty and useless. It's precisely the victory he had over death which enables us to move forward as I said at the beginning, with hope. It's the only thing which allows us to move forward with hope in our relationship and position before God, in our inheritance given by God with Christ, in our relationships with each other and how we live. Christ's victory through resurrection is the catalyst for everything that comes after. And he's as he continues to unfold his argument, Paul actually says, uh, maybe in a risky fashion, that if the gospel that he and the other apostles were preaching was indeed false, then they are false teachers of God. You know what the Bible says about false teachers of God? I'll tell you. Deuteronomy chapter 13. For people who defame God by teaching a false gospel. This is what it said in the Old Testament scriptures. Suppose someone secretly entices you, even your brother, your son, or your daughter, your beloved wife, or your closest friend, and says, let's go worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known. They might suggest that you worship the gods of the people who live nearby or who come from the ends of the earth. But do not give in or listen, have no pity, and do not spare or protect them. You must put them to death. Strike the first blow yourself, and then all the people must join in. Whoa. Stone the guilty ones to death, because they've tried to draw you away from the Lord, your God, who rescued, rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of slavery. And then all Israel will hear about it and be afraid, and no one will act so wickedly again. When you begin living in the towns of the Lord your God has given you, you may hear that scoundrels among you are leading their fellow citizens astray by saying, let's go worship other gods. 
God you have not known before. In such cases, you must examine the facts carefully, and if you find the report is true and such a detestable act has been committed among you, you must attack that town and completely destroy all of its inhabitants, as well as the animals. Then you must pile all the plunder in the middle of the open square and burn it as an offering to God. Burn the entire town as a burnt offering to God. That town must remain a ruin forever. It may never be rebuilt. Keep none of the plunder that has been set apart for destruction. So Paul's putting his neck on the line in that way. That's, that's where they're coming from. The people then. That's what it meant to be a false witness, a false teacher, to live and to preach a false god, a false gospel. Paul's argument is if Christ has no victory over death, then his death on Calvary was meaningless for the Corinthians and anyone, that he should be killed, and anyone who preaches what they teach about victory over death, about a resurrected body, should be killed. That's what the scriptures say. Take away the resurrection and you pull the rug out from the complete atoning work of God. It's not merely the death, but the victory we have in the resurrection, which saves us and puts those who believe in it into a victorious position and into a victorious status. Not that so we can live like the Corinthians of the day did, but so that we can prepare for what's to come. To deny it would be to have no hope at all. And those who have already fallen asleep, as Jesus and as Paul liked to say when speaking about someone who had died, fallen asleep, temporary. Those who have already fallen asleep, they have no hope. They're dead. They're gone. What a bleak outlook when there's no hope in the resurrection, when there's no victory understood. Would you actually say that to a person who's experiencing, like, the impending loss of a loved one? Not even people who don't claim God believe that or do that. They want to fully accept the worldview they possess, maybe. That uh, split in their worldview. And that sad state of affairs brought about by, brought about if Christ was not victorious, Christians should be pitied, as I said, for their stupidity, not persecuted. But thankfully, I heard Joe whispering to Michelle, Paul doesn't end on that note. He doesn't end on that bleak, hopeless note. He leans into the truth. And he admonishes them with the truth that Christ has victory, and so do we. That because Christ has victory, so do we. He calls Jesus the first of a great harvest. Some of you might be familiar with that. Christ is our first fruits, the choicest selection, the sign of what's to come for the farmer, a good crop. And if that's true, Paul then is finally getting to a point in this penultimate chapter. That surely there must be some agency that comes with accepting and living 
and the truth of this victory. In verse 30 through 32, Paul turns our attention to his own example again, showing that his behavior is consistent with his belief of the resurrection of the dead. Look at my behavior. Look at your behavior. Look at my behavior. Paul's conduct conduct makes no sense unless there is something to come. Unless there is victory and something to come. No one can dispute the fact that Paul lived dangerously. Almost from the moment of his conversion, his enemies were trying to kill him. And we see it recorded in the book of Acts. 9, 14, 21, 22, 23. All in the book of Acts. Constantly in prison. He's constantly talking about it. I'm in prison for you. I'm here. I'm being chased out of towns. I'm being beaten. I'm being threatened. I'm being mocked, abused. He's ready to die for it. That's the life, and that's the meaning that victory in the resurrection provided for Paul. It's what eventually did kill him, preaching that message. But his victory allowed him to do it without fear. Hedonism is the logical outcome of denying the resurrection and victory of Christ celebrating and indulging in the degradation of humanity. If you don't live as as if there's future glory to grasp and to partake in, then live your indulgent life. And that's the world we live in. Might as well. Might as well rape, pillage, and kill the world and those around you for your own satisfaction, because truly, YOLO. Why live any other way if your worldview says there's nothing to come, if you don't understand victory in a resurrected position? At least be a consistent fool. We need to be careful to separate ourselves from a culture that encourages us to live in a truth like that. Live our feelings. Do what makes us happy. Indulge. Let others... Let others do what makes them happy. Not just you do you. Let others do them and don't get in their way. Don't speak violence into someone's life. We need to be careful that we aren't living out our life as if there is no victorious resurrection and glory to come. The Corinthians, so wise as they were, had already been deceived. And that's the reason they came to reject a meaningful understanding of the resurrection. The Corinthians entered into fellowship with rotten people. They failed to separate themselves from a culture in which they lived in, a godless one. They began to esteem and emulate those who spoke with worldly wisdom. They took down, or they looked down on Paul and the apostles. They looked onto their teachers as more wise, as more enlightened. They not only tolerated those who lived in immorality, they embraced them, as I said. Immorality of all kinds, indulgence of all kinds, desecrating the communion, mocking God and the whole way that they lived. 
the exercise of their spiritual gifts, chaotic. Everything that they lived out, their faith lived out as if there was no future glory. And so will we be surprised then when we, like the Corinthians, adopt a lifestyle and a behavior of sin that our doctrine will fall aside and suffer if we're not careful? Will we begin to live and teach a false gospel because we fail to understand our agency in light of victory, in light of victorious Christ, in light, in light of us as victorious through Christ. Paul's challenge to them was to sober up and face their folly, to deal with it. He uses harsh language, which Scripture says you shouldn't use. He calls them fools, and he uses specific verbiage. is harsh when he admonishes their line of thinking and their line of questioning and their and the way that they live their supposed faith. By dying to sin in Christ, we are delivered from its power over us. Death owned us through sin, our sin, but by faith and in the risen and victorious Jesus, we have died to it. Death has no power over us. He says death has no sting, no claim, no victory over us. Death no longer owns us. Perhaps we own it. Paul ends his argument at, at the end there, that final verse. Always work, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Sound doctrine of the gospel, of the victorious Christ and his people over death, gives us stability even in the midst of troubled times and in the face of false teaching. False teaching destabilizes us, but sound doctrine stabilizes us. Proverbs chapter 12 says, Wickedness never brings stability, but the godly have deep roots. Proverbs 12.3 Scripture and sound doctrine is meant to stimulate our devotion and service to God. So allow Paul's admonishment to, in, in his letter to the Corinthians, serve you by motivating you to be diligent and persistent in understanding your agency as a victorious creation and a future glory, not as a uh, reason to live indulgently now, to live sinful now. There is life and glory to come because of Christ. There is ultimate meaning in the things of today because of Christ, because death was defeated, because it has no victory, it has no sting. And so as we contemplate on our shared victory in Christ and prepare ourselves for communion now, I'll just end with Paul's words elsewhere in a different letter. Philippians. Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith, and I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. And I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection 
from the dead. A few questions and then we'll break for communion, but I'll give them to you now. What has victory over death meant for you? In a practical way, what has victory over death meant to you? How have you processed that in the past? Have you? Second, are there adjustments in your behavior or conduct that could better reflect the implications of the victory that we have in Christ? Are there adjustments in your behavior or conduct, your way of living, that should better reflect the implications of victory that we have in Christ and the future glory that is to come? And last, as you forecast your life to the end, oh, scary thought, as you forecast your life to the end, what do you want to be the primary indicator that you live a triumphant life in Christ? What do you want to be the primary indicator that you live a triumphant and understood victory in Christ? Let's break.